When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the border between where wake stops and dream begins? And I think a lot of my work and interests are around illuminating how truly blurry it is and always has been. Welcome to Sync Love, sponsored by Sync Floor, a podcast where we get to chop it up about film, music, and production with experts from across the media landscape. The pairing of film and music is an inspiration to creatives everywhere. On this episode, we were discussing the magic of those pairings with one of the most perceptive minds in the business, Courtney Sheehan, who will share insights about Charlie Kaufman's latest film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, now on Netflix. Courtney is a dream tech researcher, a filmmaker based in Los Angeles, and formerly executive and artistic director for the Northwest Film Forum, the largest independent film center in the Pacific Northwest. In 2018, she was named one of the 50 most influential women in Seattle and recognized by the City of Seattle with the Mayor's Award for Arts and Innovation. Welcome to the show, Courtney. I'm so thrilled to have you here. Hi, Kurt. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Yeah. I want to first kind of get into it by talking about how we met and this crazy project we got to do together. And... You know, as I was getting ready for this episode, I went into the Wayback Machine and looked up some positioning that we had on what we were up to. And so I want to read you this line and then get you to describe that project and what it meant to you. We believe connecting artists across disciplines creates a fertile environment for building community through art. And I felt like that's a great way to get you to kind of talk about how we met and to talk about this idea of connecting music and picture. Tell us all about it. Well, Kurt... It all started at our friend Paul's birthday party where we met by chance and uh, got to talking. And that's right. That's right. Shout out to Paul Mealman. Yes. Much love, Paul. Hope you're well. And we hit it off immediately. And I think we both were seeing kindred spirits in each other around building community among artists you more specifically among musicians and me in seattle's film community and it didn't take long until we started to think about collaborating intentionally around a project that would really facilitate those fertile connections you know i remember one of the things that was really cool is that i felt that i found a a fellow doer you know somebody who like we would talk about something and we like you know yeah we can we can actually do that let's get to it right and we spent a day hacking out a plan that was like a three phase like year long plan and then we went <laughs> and did each of those things and the first part of that project was to take music from one of the artists on your record label, Brick Lane Records, and provide it for filmmakers to create a short film using the stems. And there was an application process for filmmakers to propose the project they wanted to do inspired by the music provided by the artists. 
was right. It was uh, Benjamin Verdo's record. It was an EP we put out. Yeah. So we were really in the weeds of creating and collaborating in this way and got to just facilitate some cool introductions between local artists. So I remember the recipient of that particular grant to make the film, the short film piece was Neely Gadiansky, a really great uh, animator in Seattle. That was a beautiful trippy short film she did too. Yeah. I remember the next thing that we decided to do involved another sort of trippy thing of Holy Mountain. You want to talk a bit about that? Sure. So, you know, after starting from music, we thought, okay, what happens if we start from film and invite vocal musicians to propose the type of live score they would compose and perform with a film? And what if we let the audience actually vote on the film that they wanted to see a live score? With And this was part of a series that was super popular at the forum called Puget Soundtrack, where we would invite bands and musicians to choose a film they wanted to do a live score for, because so often musicians are also film buffs or have particular films that are really in sync with their sound, right? So we had this live audience voting to choose a film, and it ended up being none other than Holy Mountain. And then people put together short, minute-long excerpts of the type of approach they would take to the score. And the winner ended up being Zen Mother, right? Yes, yes, Monica's band. Very cool stuff in general. And and they did such an amazing job doing that live score. That was truly a memorable event. Yeah, really one for the books. I'm glad we did it. Yes, yes, we we got to do it and realized all of the things that we talked about for that year. Uh, Really, really impressive. I'm honored to have gotten to work with you on that. Likewise, my friend. Talking about the trippy stuff, When we talked about having you on the show a while back, you had started on your process on dream tech and mapping the neuroscience space. First, I'd love to have you talk a little bit more about that to give people context and then talk about the film choice for this episode and how those things connect. Sure. Yeah. It's quite a journey with some leaps here. It's like, you know, we were just talking about doing film and music stuff in Seattle. And now, listeners, we're going to go into another life chapter where I moved to California to find myself. (laughs) And of course, that took me deep into my dreams, which is really to say I've had this longstanding interest in dream neuroscience. So, you know, the idea of investigating to the degree that we can at this time, what is happening in the brain during a dream? Why do we dream? You know, looking at those questions, not just from what is traditionally approached in a lot of Western culture from this sort of analytic angle around the content and trying to decipher, you know, what do these symbols mean and how do we interpret them on a psychological level, but also the form of the neurophysiology underlying the processes of dreaming, the neural correlates of dreaming, and how this becomes a really fascinating jumping off point for exploring the nature of consciousness, which is, of course, something that remains elusive and mysterious on neurobiological levels, even as we can see parts of what's happening there. It's certainly not a puzzle that humans have solved. And so I kind of picked back up this interest in dream neuroscience not long after I moved to LA because I was reading a book 
by the wonderful Octavia Butler, really, really important writer in the history of 20th century literature in the U.S. and certainly a huge influence on the genre of sci-fi and speculative fiction. And I was reading her book, Mind of My Mind, and it just kind of inspired me to think about the latest that might be happening with dreams and technology. I just sort of thought, whoa. Her writing is the kind of writing in science fiction that sort of bootstraps creativity. I find, you know, there are a few authors that she's at the top of that list where if you want to kind of get creative about something, just reading her work can kind of get you started, regardless of whatever it is that you're, you're thinking. Yeah, even if you're looking for a presidential slogan for like a fascist campaign. You know, (laughs) if folks don't know, quite eerily, Make America Great Again actually came from the book Parable of the Talents and was presidential slogan for a very scary candidate um, set in the not too distant future. So that book was published in 1998 and has been returned to a lot right now. Yeah, I think for the first time, those two books, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents have towards the top of the best New York Times bestseller list. You were continuing on your journey. Yes, back to the dreams. So I basically went down this rabbit hole of, you know, the latest dream narrow science research and the early attempts of developing some of those findings into technologies that directly interface with the dreaming mind. So that's what I mean when I say dream tech. And there are examples of dream tech kind of going back to the 80s, even when there started to be these efforts to try to trigger a lucid dream, one of those dreams where you know that you're dreaming and may be able to exert control over the dream. And that basic tech just used audiovisual cues, just kind of like flashing lights and playing sounds on a device that you would wear on your head, hoping to kind of trigger you when you were in rapid eye movement sleep in the hopes of making you lucid. So since that kind of early foray into dream tech. In recent years, there have been some really exciting advancements. It's still super early wave. This is stuff that is like not going to be household products tomorrow for the most part, but the advancements are significant and the inevitability, I think, of technology continuing to cross that threshold from wake into sleep is very fascinating to me. And I think merits raising questions about and paying attention to and anticipating and thinking about before it hits us like a sack of bricks. So that's what so much of my work has been about is researching what's happening as well as developing a couple of different artistic projects around exploring these ideas because, of course, it's so rich and so evocative for us to think about through story. You touched on the idea of thinking about the ethics before we end up being buried in the consequence and feels like a really, really good thing to be doing, especially in this kind of space. Yeah, and very inspired and in line with the model set forth by Octavia Butler. There's the slogan, Octavia tried to tell us. 
you know, that's like so much of what her books were like, you know, if you keep playing the logic out (laughs) of like what's happening today, like there's some stuff, you know, we should maybe be concerned about on the horizon. And so dream tech, you know, this question of like, is it cool or is it creepy kind of immediately comes up because it's like, wow, like what if you could control your dreams? What if you could learn in your dreams? What if you could explore with intentionality and security and support with your therapist, like the, you know, deepest rooted issues that make themselves present in your dreams? What if you could tap into the supposed precognitive abilities of dreams? But of course, all that comes as well with what does it look like when big tech gets a hold of my dream data? That's right. What does it look like when there are dream advertisements inserted into my sleep? Who's trying to record my dreams? What are they trying to do with that? You know, is this mind control? Filmmakers and artists and writers have anticipated and imagined what this all might look like in their artwork for a really, really long time. It's fascinating to see, like, where are we really with the science and the tech today? And then to imagine through art, like, where might we be going in the future? It's kind of interesting. You had sent me an article in Silicon that Tristar, one of our producers, and Gizmodo about will it ever be possible to share dreams? And there was some really interesting writing in there that kind of spanned from the really optimistic to the really pessimistic. And it strikes me that this is one of those things that you have to have some people who are super passionate and super patient as we try to wind our way through process of what it all means. There was a, a quote that I thought was really interesting from Adam Horowitz from MIT Media Lab. He said in this that we cannot share a whole dream without sharing a whole self. And it was in the context of this gap between what we think we'll be able to do in terms of mapping the dreamscape and sharing it. But the fact there's always this element of the experience, the personal experience that we hard to communicate. I'd love to hear your perspective on what he was talking about there and what you found. Yeah. And, you know, Adam starts out that quote by saying, you know, in order to talk about recording or being able to share a dream, we need to talk about what the definition of dream is. And do we have a common shared definition? And in fact, without going into the details, we don't. Scientifically, we don't. Culturally, we don't entirely. We do know that dreaming is a universal feature of human experience. And that alone makes it a shared experience. But there's so much that we don't understand. So I know Adam because he developed this really fascinating device called the Dormio as part of his work in the MIT Media Lab with other graduate students that actually allows you to program what you want to think about in hypnagogia. And hypnagogia is that sort of liminal state when you are drowsing and you're falling asleep. And it's known for like when you might get those like flashes of like images or strands of thought and you're kind of disembodied. I mean, you really, yourself is dissolving into unconsciousness. It's like you have to let go of waking in order to go to sleep. And that's part of that process. And it has been discovered that that is a very imaginative, creative time of consciousness that artists and inventors for many, many years have actively manipulated. Edison would actively manipulate his hypnagogian to work on his inventions. Dali would pull his paintings from this time as well. And so Adam's device allows you to program what you want to think about in that state. 
And the applications for this are vast in terms of problem solving, in terms of music composition. Musicians really work a lot with their dreams. And at the base of it, Adam is like, one of the reasons I really want to offer this tool for people is so they can see a vaster vision of themselves. So when he says your whole self, I think he's talking about not just this idea of who am I when I'm awake for a certain number of hours a day and I'm in this reflexive state of consciousness and you know my brain waves can be characterized in these ways and I can be recording a podcast interview with my friend Kurt and it can be deemed an acceptable state of mind to be doing that versus All this other time we spend in our lives, a third of our lives asleep, so many incalculable hours of that time dreaming. And in fact, that your experience of your own story is much slipperier than the version that can be told by just your waking self. If you leave out that dream self, you deprive yourself of so much of your own story. And I don't say this to say, oh, like not enough people pay attention to their dreams. Everyone should really be like keeping really rigorous dream journals and like diving into all that every day. It's just to kind of honor and recognize the role and the significance of sleep and dream and, you know, supposedly altered states of consciousness in creating our experience of the world. And that is the not at all tenuous tie I will now make to setting up the choice of this Charlie Kaufman movie. Because there you go. There you go. Nice move. Nice move. <laughs> see what I did there? Because that's what... Let's see what you did this there. Is precisely, this, this is precisely what Charlie Kaufman movies are all about. The impossibility yes, yes. of any objective reality and the internal realities that are much slipperier than just, you know, boring old waking life. That's right. That's right. And, you know, this particular movie was a really, really great exercise in that. And actually, you know, as you were talking about that idea of having this dream space that is so expansive that we don't get to tap into in an interesting way as yet, it reminded me of this particular scene in the film where they touched on the notion of perspective and getting outside of your head and remembering that that the world out there is you know, quote unquote, larger than the one in your head. And in some ways, I feel like the film itself and what you're talking about in terms of of the dream space and accessing the dream space sort of flips that notion of perspective upside down. And it says that actually there's this really expansive space that we don't tap into that's all about being inside of your head. If we could tap into it and tell each other about it, we might find that the world is even bigger, (laughs) you know? And I thought that was really interesting. I love that that's what you took from it. And Kurt, I just have to ask, What did you think of this movie? Did you like it? It was engaging. And I think it's going to be one of those films that I'll return to and think about, you know, multiple times. It was also really beautifully shot. There were so many, you know, shots that I was just like, wow, this would be nice to look at in terms of the way he would very intentionally pan across things and use sort of different kinds of color and wallpaper and all these things that were really beautiful. At the same time, there's some parts that were, you know, sort of really 
already well-trod territory. But I think my perspective on watching the film was significantly impacted by thinking about what we were going to talk about. And from there, it was also really engaging for me. Yeah. Uh, what about you? Yeah. I just have to admit up front that I'm a bit bashful about choosing this film because it is totally this ultra-white male Navel gazy, <laughs> self indulgent screed of a movie, and I can't enough, and won't enough. defend it on those levels. Um, yeah, and I don't think there's a need, you to. know. But we just sort of have to. I have to just kind of own that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I started watching and getting obsessed with Charlie Coffin movies when I was in middle school, and like you know, mm-hmm. want to be screenwriter. And this is one of the few guys that has this sort of household name familiarity as a screenwriter, and just all the brainy of it. And, you know, although I've outgrown many of the influences of that time, this movie really hit home for me, both on personal levels. And also, I think it has some really interesting commentary about the decline of a certain kind of white American culture, a certain kind of white man that is quite literally killing himself at a very high rate and is very demographically aligned with what you're seeing in the film. So I think there's interesting cultural commentary happening there. And thank you for watching it because it is a slog and it's a totally mixed bag for people. Lots of people hate this movie. Lots of people love this movie. It's cold and bleak and dreary and long. Thank you for going through it. But I love that this movie and like a lot of his work, it's almost like this sort of sly provocation of a premise that's like, what if you start from dream? You know, like you're saying, like, what if you kind of turn it on its head and instead of just accepting the notion of objective reality and or like waking consciousness at face value as we've been fed, what if you kind of wonder, well, isn't all of waking consciousness also a dream that's virtually generated by the brain? I mean, isn't all of our perceptual experience ultimately more informed by internal inputs than external inputs? Don't you and I fundamentally see and experience like different worlds? This isn't new philosophical territory. I love how he does it. And I always am drawn to stories that unfold not necessarily around like typical plot development typical character development. So the fact that like the idea of who the main character even is, who the voice in the voiceover really is, whose story this is, whose consciousness this is, gets more and more unclear as the movie proceeds. It's like watching something dissolve, to use the word you used earlier about letting go. Dude, and that's the last shot is a dissolve. Yeah, I thought it was a great choice, especially given what we're going to talk about today. And I thought that insofar as we love to talk on this show about the connection of music and picture and how they enhance and make each other into art, you know, one thing that struck me about that film was in some ways the light touch in the score. There are lots of places where you feel it almost more than you hear it. And then the places where you truly hear it, it uses juxtaposition really well. Like I think there are these places where you get almost like a pastoral feeling over these really tense moments. I thought that was really great to experience and would make for great fodder for what we talk about here. Yes, that is a very good point. That juxtaposition 
breeds this unease, you know, as if it's like something bubbling up from the unconscious or like from the basement, right? Like Mm -hmm, the basement mm -hmm. figures in this film very prominently, very symbolically charged with like all the things that you imagine psychically Mm -hmm. to be in the basement. And I don't know about you, but whenever the basement shows up in my dreams, like it's not a fun one, you know? Right, that's right. Well, you know, the thing too, speaking of the not fun basement scenes in dreams, one of the things that connects really well to some of the things you've talked about as far as mapping this space is the idea of people wanting to have control. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of this that sort of plays with this idea about control over your past and control over the way you might play them out in an alternate reality. And the idea of lucid dreaming is something that was very intriguing for me when you started talking about what people are trying to do there. I'd love for you to, to expand on that a little bit as well. Absolutely. Can we do spoilers? Yeah, I think that that's all right. Um, Yeah, go for it. (laughs) There are multiple interpretations of this very amorphous movie in terms of what is happening in the story, but one popular reading is that this entire story is actually the fantasy of the janitor character who Mm -hmm. is contemplating throughout the film committing suicide and Mm -hmm. is kind of running back through his mind this fantasy of the past of what could have been of his relationship with his parents of what he wish he would have done he's playing out his regrets and it very much is in that way about control and so much Mm -hmm. of the character's self-hatred that drives him to you know it's left unclear certainly quite possibly commit suicide is a lack of control the self-hatred that comes from that that he couldn't you know, do he couldn't dream the dream in a different direction than what That's he wanted. Right. That's right. And so when it comes to researching the development of dream tech, there is probably the single most frequent example of it is lucid dream induction devices. So that started with that kind of early prototype in the 80s. And then today, there are a couple of different methods being used to basically make it so that you can take this headband type of device, put it on your head, and Mm -hmm. supposedly triggers you to have a lucid dream and the methods include EEG so just trying to like read your brain saying try to read when you might be in REM sleep and then flash red lights on your eyelids to try to kind of seep into your dreams there's also transcranial stimulation which is much more controversial because that's exposing the entire brain to a certain frequency in order to hopefully activate part of the prefrontal cortex that's normally dormant during sleep but is the part of the brain that's like the executive suite and associated with metacognition so when you turn that back on you're able to be like oh wait this isn't real this is a dream Mm -hmm. but the effects of that are just not well studied and so we're kind of in this early dicey area of the tech that's actually being developed if it's safe if it works what the companies that are saying what they're saying about it, what they're offering their customers to be able to buy. Can you buy control over your dreams? Right. And right. and there's a lot of times in the advertisements as well as in how users themselves are articulating their interest in these technologies is there's this sort of baseline assumption about control that the ultimate experience would be to control your dreams in order to have fun 
in order to explore the universe, maybe in order to explore the internal universe of yourself. But there's a big emphasis on entertainment value. And this, I think, is concerning. And lucidity frequently gets conflated with control. And in fact, lucidity means awareness. And this won't be surprising because of the uh, perspective and belief I just shared. I had a lucid dream a few weeks ago. And (laughs) in the dream, I was talking to a guy and I become aware that I'm dreaming. And I look at him and I say, huh, I guess I know I'm dreaming. So I guess I could make you do whatever I want, huh? But then I think and I'm like, but I don't want this guy to do anything. And then I think to myself, well, I guess I could fly right now. But then I remember how frequently when I try to fly in lucid dreams, I actually just wake myself up. So I decide not to do that either. And then there's a door and I think, oh, but if I open the door, it could be anywhere I want. I could go anywhere I want. And then I thought, but I don't really particularly want to go anywhere right now either. Like, and I, you know, this is me. It's like, I kind of just want to experience the dream for what it is. And that's, this movie is like this, like dream kind of spiraling downward in a way until it's inevitable end. But yeah. Yeah. You talk about sort of that difference between control and awareness. It sort of, it takes me to a space of thinking about control, awareness and sharing and this idea of, you know, sharing dreams and collective dreams. And you did a really interesting exercise, you know, sort of the night before the election. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So this was a different type of experiment for me to try out, but I thought, huh, what if I sent my friends just short recording that's essentially a guided meditation to kind of try to seed our dreams for the night before the election to try to, you know, just do whatever little tiny bit of unconscious collective manifest nudging we can do towards the future that we want to see because and it worked. And then I won the election for us. That's it. We did it. <laughs> and and you did it. So tell me, because I didn't get to hear I asked folks in the morning to call in a dream hotline and just leave the voicemail of the dream that they had. So we got some really fascinating dreams from that. But I'm curious how it went for you. It was really, really interesting. It's been a long time since I went to sleep. And as you know, I don't sleep a ton, uh, given given all the things going on. But but went to sleep with that kind of intentionality, and and of course you have a very soothing voice, so that was good. Like to to kind of you know listen to that and go to sleep. And it was the first time in a long time that I had that feeling of lucidity in a dream, and it, it was you know probably because of all the tension the night before the election, I still had a very chaotic feeling, but that awareness was in some sense calming. And I actually ended up doing it again the next night just because I was like, that was really cool. I want to do that again. (laughs) And so I'm actually really looking forward to continuing to try using that same recording that you said as a way of really intentionally getting into that mind state. For a meeting I was prepping for, I was listening to parts of the score for The Dead Don't Die, uh, a Jarmusch flick. And um, and in particular, I was listening to, you know, sort of compositions by him and his band Squirrel. And one of the compositions was called, This Is All Going to End Badly. And so I was like, I hope this isn't predictive for what that's going to happen. <laughs> I go to sleep for all this night before the election. But yeah, no, it was, it was really very, very cool. I'm glad you gave it a go. I know. Yeah, you have like extra, super duper, extraordinary conditions surrounding your ability to sleep as a new dad and all mm-hmm. the things. But 
I'm glad you did it. Yeah, no, me too. So was I. So I want to ask you, you know, sort of getting back to the film, what was your feeling about the music in the film and the score? Yes, you know, I think one of the reasons the film resonated with me is because I'm from rural America. I'm not <laughs> from this deep in the, you know, great plain, yeah, yeah. it would appear perhaps in, perhaps in Oklahoma, it's not given an actual setting, but Oklahoma, the musical figures prominently and sort of is part of that pastoral vibe you were talking about earlier, just kind of coloring the entire quality of the score and the soundtrack. And I grew up you know, with that musical and playing bassoon in the pit orchestra while my sister was one of the leads in the play, you know, like this is totally my story. And, you know, I think that the music is all of the things that you described before. Its function is very surreptitious in a way. And I remember reading a little bit of an interview with the composer. Is I think his name is Ray Bradley. I almost feel like the name sounds familiar but not maybe it rhymes with that <laughs> we'll confirm it but interestingly he also did the music for the oa which has some of the most exact examples of dream tech that i've seen in like contemporary film and tv yeah yeah jay wadley is his name i think it rhymes with it yeah i'm just taking some letters and throwing them together you know <laughs> just making up names for people <laughs> he shared that he had a classical background and that this was mm -hmm. you know a way to kind of exercise those muscles again because there's a lot of more orchestral music here kind of building off of that oklahoma type palette and so you've got yeah this sort of like warm swaddling at times of these very soft pastoral like there's a flute line that reappears yeah, yeah, yeah. and these really nice strings is there a harp in it or is i think there's a harp right? yeah that featured a couple times yeah and then you've got that layered on top of this increasingly dark surreal malaise where just side note like if honestly even if people don't like this movie for other reasons, it's worth watching just for Tony Collette. Like Tony Collette playing the male character's mother, she puts the tick mm -hmm. in hysterics <laughs> in like the best way. She's the so way, yeah. funny, and yeah, yeah, yeah. the range of the performances are so great. That's but, right. Yeah, That's so right. that music kind of put on top of what at times feels like a horror film like it's eerie it's yeah i think i read that kaufman really specifically asked him from a composition perspective that like hey i don't want it to go into the horror genre kind of thing and so i think he did this really great job of balancing tension while not taking it across the line yeah it was really well done and i think again like this kind of deft touch in places and it underscores the dry humor of the film as well right because we're talking about ultimately this very existentially angsty like borderline maybe nihilist like just like dark humor that is very characteristic of Kaufman's work and so the music underscores that by it's like here's some whimsy but it's not in a Disney way it's like Disney took some shrooms and decided to have hypothermia like in a in a truck yeah so as you look towards the future and, you know, sort of where you're going to take some of this stuff and your research and your passion and also have it intersect with this really clear passion for film and media that you have. What do you see going on in the next, you know, I don't know, let's call it three years for you. Whew. 
<laughs> now we're now we're in the job interview time. Okay. Oh, so, you know, it's it's interesting because reconnecting with this interest that I'd had in dream science and just dreaming as a portal into understanding the nature of consciousness and human experience, it made helped me to realize that I was originally drawn to film because of its approximative resonance with dreaming movies are examples of dream tech, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it, very, very much yes, so. Yes. And I've been spending some time finally, cause it's like, oh man, I got to do my homework. So it's like, got to go back and like read some Carl Jung, you know, and he has, this, <laughs> he has this idea of active imagination, this idea of taking images from the unconscious and then really working with them very intentionally. In fact, it was an influence on the election Eve dream seed that you listened to mm, yeah. this idea of dreaming the dream forward and there's this whole process and you know you kind of take away from it but that's how I feel when I watch a movie like this and I like to think of how it encourages us as the viewer to embrace that slippery nature of our own selfhood where it's like I mean this movie this story was very much about where do I stop and this other person begins and then Mm -hmm. you know really to the point of being like oh like the person you thought was the I you know first person but that makes me think about similarly the border between where wake stops and dream begins. And I think a lot of my work and interests are around not destabilizing that border, that line, but just illuminating how truly blurry it is and always has been to ideally for positive impact on how we see ourselves in the world and the types of ethical concerns and questions that come into play when there are large corporate interests trying to cross that line or define where that line is for us or basically imagine all those terms and conditions checkboxes that you have to agree to just to like buy a ticket or like sign up for something on a website all that fine Mm -hmm. print all that data that you give, all of those Mm -hmm. rights that you concede, like imagine all that very much actively applying to your dreams, to your interior psychic spaces. And at a certain point, I think it's somewhat arbitrary how we even define this because obviously in a very osmosis kind of way, the images and ideas and influences that we're receiving all the time every day are seeping in already doing that yeah yeah. we're already being moved yeah whether we want to or not yes yes and so it's kind of just a matter of exposing and bringing light to how that is already happening and that the idea of dream technology ends up being a very evocative jumping off point for just continuing to engage with a lot of these like big picture questions that we're wrestling with in so many ways today across tech and data privacy and surveillance and you know all of those types of issues and to also think like you know as we look at what is truly like a frontier space in tech how do we raise questions that influence our design and development processes differently such that ideally we get ahead of some of this and don't find ourselves, you know, 5, 10, 20, 30 years down the line being like, oh, I guess we accidentally coded our own internal biases into how this AI learns. And now we have to try to undo that. Or like, how can we be liberatory 
with the potential applications for dream tech so that shared dreaming is something that isn't just fanciful notion, but could actually be a palpable aid in things like collective healing. That's right. That's right. And bringing us together. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. This has been an amazing, amazing time to spend with you, Courtney. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing so much of yourself and your perspective. Oh, my heart is so warm with love for you, Kurt. It's so nice. Thank you for letting me nerd out about all my nerd stuff. No problem. I love it when you nerd out. So in typical horny podcast fashion, we spent some time, the producers and I, talking about, well, what do we want as the same question we ask every guest, you know, sort of as the wrap up. I mean, I think this actually follows pretty nicely from that idea about, you know, sort of being moved and sharing and that kind of stuff. And, you know, it came from a conversation I was having with someone who said that they were getting teased by a date about the fact that there's a silent gladiator that always gets him. He says that, like, doesn't matter what context he hears it, he immediately starts to get emotional when he hears this. You know, I told him, I was like, look, in consolation, I was like, look, that that's kind of what this stuff is for. It's, it's, it's here to move us. If it's not doing that, you know, then, you know, what's the point? And so you know, sometimes that thing really gets you, and even if it's a little corny, like, that's part of the human experience. And so we, we decided that that's going to be the question. What's a scene in a film, ideally, of a scene that's that's paired with music in some really interesting ways as a lot of really emotional and emotive scenes are that always gets you that is a really good question you know i'm just gonna for the sake of sticking with themes of diving deep into the unconscious i'm just gonna go with the first thing that came up for me which goes Mm -hmm. really far back in time and you know i haven't seen this film in many years but the fox and the hound the fox and the hound there's this scene where the old lady drives the fox into the forest to abandon him and leave him there. And it's so sad that just thinking about it, you know, I'm welling up a little. No, but it's so effective. And I think the music is all of those heart tugging strings, you know? Yeah. Uh, Disney. It all had to end there. I started with the white guy and I end with Disney. I don't know what this has, Kurt. <laughs> they they know how to do it. So so you yeah. yourself for that one. <laughs> and they start early. Exactly. <laughs> Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much again to Courtney Sheehan, our guest on this episode of Sync Love. We will see you all next time, maybe on the other side of a tree. Sync Love is a co-production of Sync Floor and Electrocast Media. On our next episode, music supervisor Amine Rayner describes the unexpected musical choices that turned John Hughes' Pretty in Pink into a generation-defining classic. Our producers for this episode were John Lafferty, Trister Yeager, and David Tausick. Our editors are Cam Castro and Carlos Mora. Special thanks to Sinkflor artists Inaka and Mokov and Sinkflor partner Motor Music for their musical contributions to the show, as well as designer Jeremiah Whitaker for our Sinkflor cover art. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like this show, give us a rating and tell your friends. Until next time, I'm your host, Kurt Didi. Keep listening to the movies. Electric acid. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. 
We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to 